Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. In this episode, we talk with Natan Schneider, a sociologist at the Academic College of Tel Aviv, Yafo, Israel. He writes about the Holocaust, memory, and the human rights movement. He is the author of Jewish Memory and the Cosmopolitan Order and the Compassionate Temperament and the co-author of Human Rights and Memory. In this podcast, he discusses his work on the relationship between modernity and capitalism and the development of compassion. I guess maybe you could sort of start by telling us what question underlies your research or mm-hmm. your or your scholarly work. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm interested. I became interested in the sociology of morality and what underlies... Uh, kind of moral conduct. I mean, I was starting out um, working on compassion and what makes people compassionate. And from there, I got into researching what could be called, you know, sentiments, moral sentiments. And I was very disappointed when I started. I I was doing that already as a student. My dissertation is on, on, on compassion. And when I was starting to look at materials, I was very disappointed to see that sociology, as sociology, professionalized sociology, really did nothing, did nothing with it. It really had nothing much to offer, uh, except you know the, the the usual sociological thinking about power and interest and social control. And uh, when I was a student, there was a lot of talk about Foucault and his analysis of power and all these underlying sort of like evil things that 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 goodness is basically something that is bad. <laughs> you just have to look right, sort of like. And if you're a sociologist, you have sort of like the tools of, of looking behind the mask. It was this when, 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 when I grew up uh, becoming a sociologist, sociology was very much about unmasking. Okay. Unmasking sort of like the the hidden reality um, behind, you know, people's happy faces, mm-hmm. and that that made me that made me uh, uh, very unhappy myself. <laughs> and I was looking, I was looking for other ways of, of of doing a kind of sociology, sociology of morals. And when I started, so I started to to look at at materials which are not sociological. And this is like, I mean, this is bad advice when, when you talk to your students because, you know, <laughs> it's, it's one of the worst career moves you can make as a professional sociologist because, uh, you know, you start, you know, you start looking at, you know, 18th century pre-sociological thinking, okay. uh, the, the Enlightenment, philosophers, uh, 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 political theory, and all of a sudden you're, you're, you see yourself catapulted out of the field. And then when you get, when you try, and I mean, we are in the business of, of getting published, and then when you try to, to publish this in, in, in the sociological professional journals, you know, you usually get uh, uh, feedback and say, this is not sociology. It might be interesting, you sure, know, sure. very interesting, but it's not sociology. Why do you submit sure. this to a sociological journal, you know? And so why do you think professional sociologists um, haven't really address that question of what you know what is compassion exploring compassion sociology I think they have addressed it but it has been it, it has been hidden it has been basically hidden i mean there there is there, there is a tradition of of i think of of sociological theory, which is sort of like, um, I mean, when, when you come out of like a European tradition and Durkheimian sociology and, and, and all that, so it's, it's hidden in plain sight. But, but I think that, that, 
I mean, it's it's very difficult to measure it. I mean, that's 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 one of the things. You, you talk. I mean, sociologists l- love to talk about uh, you know norms, and and I try to talk about ideals and moral ideals and moral ideals. Uh, in many ways, uh, uh, measured by the strength of their of their claims, and not by uh, uh, sort of like uh, the, the the usual methods classes that that you take. So, so this this was very problematic because I was not interested in in doing uh, a study of attitudes, and I was not interested in doing a study of how. Uh, uh, people but uh, perceive I, I, I was trying to to and, and I remember when I was when I was a grad student how, how how difficult it was to find people in the department at Columbia I was doing my my, 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 my graduate work at Columbia University the sociology department who were like willing to to listen in in, in many ways and and, and and I said I'm not interested in measuring people's attitudes I'm not I'm, I'm not I'm not interested in, in trying to find out what normative uh, behavior or conduct is I'm, I'm trying to find out how like um, moral understanding and moral ideals have changed over history okay and then you you get this this look and that yeah this is this is very interesting but maybe you should find another building you know? <laughs> go go to the go to intellectual history go go to right. uh, to, to philosophy go to political theory but you know you're right because sociologists are very interested in measurement yeah right? and that's a very yeah. tricky thing to to, it's, to it's, measure it's impossible to measure basically because you know you try to sort of like what I was trying to do was uh, I was I was I was working on on on, on the change from religious charity to uh, to the beginnings of uh, philan- philanthropy, and to see how sort of like the secularization of religious charity. So how do you measure that? <laughs> and so you so, look. So you, what approach did you take? So what I did is is I, I, I took a textual approach, and 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 looked at, at you know what what people were writing at, around that time, and and and, and my, the theories I found were basically what I consider uh, 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 social theories, but were not part of the of the canon of social theory. And and when I later had to teach a, a, a social theory myself, you know, I started out with with Adam Smith and the theory of moral sentiment. And he's usually, I mean, if you look at uh, you know sociological tradition and. Uh, and, and and sociological theory and and the textbooks and classical sociological theory, you know, you have like you start out with the 19th century, mm-hmm. and you completely ignore the 18th century, and because this is philosophy, this is a, this is the Enlightenment, you know, we come from a critique of the Enlightenment, you know, sociological so, sociological thinking is basically is born out of a critique of the Enlightenment, out of the, this this kind of universalism and. and just, and talk about social groups and, and about power and interest. And I said, but there's a tradition of thinking in the 18th century, especially in Scotland, like Adam Smith and Ferguson and Hume, which can be sort of like they talk about sympathy, they talk about sim- they talk about moral sentiments, they talk about the market, and all of a sudden I discovered Adam Smith. <laughs> okay. And I, I remember how how. This is like only when you're like a young student, you you sit in the library and say, "Why did nobody tell me about him? <laughs> Why did I have to discover him by myself?" Sort of like, and I was really excited, and I said, "How could the person who wrote 
this book about the wealth of nations where he talks about the emergence of what he then called commercial society, basically the emergence of capitalism and market society. How could this be the same person who writes about the emergence of moral sentiments? Is this a contradiction? Is this a tension? Does it come together? And then it's sort of like, wow. And it's like I, I remember the excitement in the library. Sort of like, <laughs> I found truth. You know? like, all alone amongst stacks of books. All alone amongst stacks of books. I don't know if you've ever seen this, this, this threatening building at Columbia University, Butler Library. You know, you sit like on, in, in, in the 11th floor in some dark corner. You know? like, and have this fantasy that, you know, 200 years later, Later, you will your bones will be found there. So I'm saying, yay! Sure. I, I sort of like I got it. You right. know, it's like this is this is really interesting because this 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 guy was writing. You know, from from, from a point of view of of of, of a really heavy duty social change there were the Scottish Highlands there were like rural agricultural society and there was Glasgow which was going through this like enormous change of 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 uh, of thing and, and and I remembered you know even when I was an undergraduate how how Marx really was reading the the, the hell out of Adam Smith but somehow Adam Smith sort of like became the economists are not reading him anymore the social scientists are not reading him anymore it's sort of like this this name somehow that that everybody knows but and from there I started out and I said wow I think I've got a I've got a theory sort of like you know you know how how arrogant uh, graduate students are you know <laughs> they have found truth you know so so I've got this theory you know it's it's market society it's actually capitalism which is producing, not in an intended way, but in an un unintended way. And, and, and I sort of like got completely excited by Smith's idea of the unintended consequences of social action. In an unintended way, produces moral behavior. And I ran to my advisor and I said, I found truth. <laughs> it's capitalism, which is responsible for moral conduct. And he looked at me and said... Are you nuts? You sort of want to, you want to, you want to single-handedly destroy your career. Sure. You put this out there. You know, people are going to slaughter you. You know, it's like it goes so against the grain of what sociological theorizing is about. Don't you know that capitalism is a bad thing? <laughs> sort of like, and, and, sure. and so, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Um, how? Precisely, does capitalism lead to this morality that you're? Talking yeah. About? So, so what? What? I'm still talking about my dissertation. Basically, mm -hmm. this is like the, the the birth of public compassion, and from Smith, I got to Durkheim and the division of labor and all that. And I never argued it is that capitalism causes moral behavior. This is not. This is also. It's. It, it's not. It's not like a causality thing. It's not like this. This. You know, I'm. I'm building regret. I do regression analysis now and, and show. You know that this. This is. But that one of the unintended consequences of what I then thought, and, and, and then I started looking into the social theory, and then I discovered it. After I got truth, so I got the key, then I saw it. I saw it in Durkheim, I saw it in Simmel, I saw it, I saw it in Weber, I saw it in all these, these thinking, how they basically talk, and, 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 and Durkheim does it in the division of labor and society, and Simmel does it in his philosophy of money, and um, and the key was basically that what has market society has done, it has changed the way how human relations are being organized. And it has sort of like produced a kind of impersonalization of human relations. 
Now, if you talk about the impersonalization of human relations, when you talk about the romantics, the romantic critics of that, and the young Marx and, and others, oh, this is, this is alienation, this is not good, this is exactly what we don't want to, what we don't want, this is like Gesellschaft versus the Gemeinschaft uh, Tönnies and, and, and all that, and this leads to the anonymous relationship between people, and morality is impossible. Morality is only possible when you have face-to-face -face relationships. And what these people were sort of like trying to hint that there's a new morality growing out of impersonal relationships. Okay. And that the depersonalization of human relations uh, allows you to have this uh, kind of, so of moral sentiments towards people you don't even know because the old moral relationships were moral relationships around your own circles. And in, in modern society, what happens... And this is, I mean, Dokan talked about, you know, uh, morality as a social fact. And I was also looking, I was looking at the media a little bit. I was looking at, at how, how, how come that people look on TV, then it was not the internet, then it was TV. How come that people look on TV, see the suffering of strangers and feel something about it? Mm -hmm. And not only feel something about it, they think something must be done about mm -hmm. this. Right. This is not right starving children on the other side of, of the world. And we, it motivates them to do something. And it yeah. motivates mm -hmm. them to do something about it. So mm -hmm. why? Right. The, the, this was like a question that, 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 that interests me. Why, why? I mean, are there moral heroes? Are there like saints? Sort of like, and if, if you come with these things, with these explanations, where I wanted to understand what was the moral motivation of those people. And you ask them, they don't know themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think that the, that the normal, you know, sociological tools where you go and ask people. Don't what, work what, in this. Yeah, don't in work. This sort of when, when, when you ask them, someone, why are you so engaged? Why do you collect money? Why are you active in Amnesty International? Why are you active in, in, in hunger aid society? Mm -hmm. they, they give all kinds of, of, of wonderful answers. Something has to be done. It's the right thing to do. But there's still a deeper question of why do they feel that why, way? Why do you feel that right. way? I mean, you don't know these people. Right. Why do you feel responsible for people you don't know? So what do you think it is? And this is, and, and, and I thought this is an interesting question. I mean, why do we feel responsible for people we don't know? It's not natural. I mean, we feel responsible for, for our children, for our friends, for our, <coughs> for our family. We can expand this and say we feel responsible for, you know, for our co-citizens we are willing even to die in war you know for 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 the motherland and country but beyond that you know sort of like why we should why do we feel responsibility and there are philosophical answers and the philosophical answers it's the right thing to do we are all humans there's this equal moral worth and this is why it's right to feel morally responsible for strangers But in, if you don't feel like that, you have to overcome your feelings. Mm -hmm. This is Kantian philosophy. It's like this, this, this tension between duty and inclination. Your inclinations might be, I don't care about strangers. That's why you need it to come out of your head as a moral duty. This is not good for sociologists. This doesn't, it's not enough. So what I was trying to, 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 to see, and this, this was like the beginning of when I became interested in globalization and in global studies, is how basically market society has put us all into what 
into in a sense of of a web of group affiliations. We are all connected with each other in a sense, not morally. This is exactly what Durkheim was arguing that the division, the social division of labor, is connecting us. And, and 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 produces a kind of organic society even against our wills, because everybody is dependent on everybody else to go through the day. This is like I thought this is like a brilliant uh, idea that Durkheim uh, sort of like taught taught in his division of labor. He says, you know that that you know that this is what what I thought. Wow, functionalism has something actually to offer, <laughs> you know, to sociologists. I mean, it's like. How do, you know, I get up in the morning, there's, there's coffee, there's this, the, the, the public transportation is coming, and, you know, it, it all, it, in it a way, works, yeah. it, it uh-huh. works because everybody is doing their specific job and producing this kind of huge network of people sort of like functioning in a society without thinking in the morning, sort of like, what can I do now? To, to produce a functioning society. I'm just doing my job. And, and, and I was translating this into, in, into, a kind of moral, into a kind of moral sort of like sentiment, sort of mind, that people are looking at strangers and they know that these strangers are strangers, but they feel, it's a moral sentiment, they feel connected to them. They feel connected to them because modern society has produced this kind of web of group affiliations where people are not alone anymore. Of course there's this. I mean, it's still not, uh, it's still much more natural to feel connected to your own kind and people look at the news and, 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 and first try to figure out, you know, who's that that person? Does he belong to, to, to my people or does he belong to to, to other people? And, 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 and societies at war, and I, you know, I come from a society which is at war in Israel, and societies at war, of course, have a much stronger Moral connection to the people, to their own people, then especially to the people of of, of enemy. And uh, but it was exactly that. I mean, when Smith was 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 writing, he's, he was writing about the transition from he was writing about the transition from uh, uh, so- societies where people are being uh, enemies to a society where, being, where people are being competitors and rivals. And it's not the same thing. Sure. Okay. It's not the same thing. Competitors are connected to each other. They're connected to each other through this economic game. Mm-hmm. Enemies are also connected to each other, but they have to wipe out each other in order to be, to be right, in that right. sense. And Sure. Okay. Um, so the, it, it's really this um, interconnectedness that leads to uh, morality. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. So this was the beginning. Which is a bi- a, maybe an unintended by. It's an unintended cons- It's an unintended yeah. consequences of market society. Sure. Okay. Um, so I know that you've done a little work also on um, the human rights movement as it has sort of emerged in the last couple of decades. Yeah. Um, so how do you situate that particular brand of morality in this conversation? Um, okay, so from there I, I, I moved on like to global studies and to global morality, but also not as global morality, not as moral uh, heroism, sort of like not as a new religious movement, which can be done, of course. But I was trying to figure out what underlies global global moral conduct and human rights. Of course, the human rights regime is is, is one of them. And and as with like philanthropy in the, in the nineteenth century, there's also the critique 
exactly the same critique that it's oh, it's social control, it's political control, it's imperialism, it's colonialism, it's bad. So the, these people might may think they're good, but underlying, we sociologists know they're like they're like the continuation of colonialism with other means, with and, 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 and all that. You know, the, the Noam Chomsky argument maybe in a, as as a very strong way. And and I was trying to figure out, you know, also what makes these people tick, what makes uh, all of a sudden uh, come out, and and I started working. Uh, uh, historically, for for, for 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 a long time on this, and and, and I started to understand how the hum, human rights uh, 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 human rights regime after World War II grew out of the minor of a critique of the minority rights uh, uh, regime between the world wars, and so the, the, and there's an enormous amount of historical writing about the minority rights uh, thing under the pa- Paris Peace Conference and all. It's not sociology. It's not sociology. You should not tell sociologists to get into these things. You know, it's like you become an historian. You become you become like an international relationship person. You know, it's like it's really not sociology. Sort of like, but it's interesting. <laughs> it really is e- extremely exciting. So, so I I I, I was looking in in very. Uh, 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 particular terms I looked at, at the work of Hannah Arendt and her critique of the minority rights system, another another thinker who's like uh, rejecting social scientific thinking and, and looks at, at, at things philosophically or in terms of political thought. And I got interested in, uh, in ethnicity and how like uh, how this minority rights regime was concerned also with the Jewish minority rights in Europe. And from there, sort of like I got into the globalization of Holocaust memory and how the globalization of Holocaust memory is connected to human rights. So can you break down just what you mean by that term, the globalization of Holocaust memory? Because what I have seen is that when you look historically, when you look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and who worked on it, you see an enormous amount of Jewish organizations being involved in it. You see, like people in in America from the American Jewish uh, Congress. You see uh, Jewish political activists between the war who were engaged in minority uh, uh, activism. You see uh, people in France like Rene Cassin, who was very crucial in in passing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You see people like Raphael Lemkin, who was very crucial in passing the Genocide Convention. I'm going to talk about him a little bit later. And um, and all of a sudden, I sort of like started to think that maybe this kind of uh, human rights thinking is a code word for those people. And then I started looking at an organization which was based in New York called the Institute of Jewish Affairs. Okay. This was like an organization of um, demographers, sociologists, political scientists, legal scholars, who were like sitting in New York collecting data about what happened in Europe, uh, what would later be called the Holocaust. And they were preparing briefs for the American uh, prosecution at, at the Nuremberg trials. And they were providing, for instance, the iconic number of six million. This is was done out of their research. And they wanted basically to appear in Nuremberg as a claimee. They wanted to they wanted they wanted to push what they called a Jewish indictment against the Nazis. Okay. 
And the Americans said, no, no way, we're not going to do this. This is, this is not good. This is not why we do the, the Nuremberg trials. We have to keep this on a universal level. And we're going to take not uh, a Jewish indictments and crimes against the Jewish people. We're going to take uh, uh, a legal concept which already existed after World War War, and we're going to introduce it to the Nuremberg trials. And this legal concept has become crucial for basically the international legal order. It's called crimes against humanity. And in, a, in, a, in many ways, crimes against humanity was a stand-in for crimes against the Jewish people. Sure. And so the Jews became humanity. And in many ways, human rights grows out of that crimes against humanity. And when you look at, at, at all the negotiations behind the scenes, it was clear that human rights and the, the, the passing of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights had to do with um, what had happened during the war. It even says it quite clearly without saying it, barbarous acts which have steered the conscience of mankind. And it was clear for everybody in '48 what that meant. So what you have is like in, 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 in real time, you have people working on an international, of the emergence of a new international order, taking the memory of, of the, the Holocaust of the Jews and translating it into a more generalized language and disconnecting it basically from the historical context. And this is exactly what has happened. Today, people start talking talk about human rights. They talk about uh, uh, crimes against humanity. And it has been disconnected completely from the historical context it emerges. And then, of course, there was the Cold War, and it all went into a deep freeze, this, this whole, whole human rights regime. And after the end of the Cold War, it was sort of like taken out of the freezer again. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and, and then it could... Uh, uh, be re-employed with the International Criminal Court and crimes against humanity and, 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 and all that. And it, what I try to show in, 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 in these two books, Human Rights and Memory and, and in the Jewish Memory and the Cosmopolitan Order, was how basically memory is, uh, uh, is an analytical tool with which we can understand, again, moral, uh, the, the emergence of morality. It's not, it's not nature, it's not moral heroism, but here I try to see how memory can be like a conceptual tool for, for that. Sure. Wonderful. This is so interesting. Um, I guess as, um, yeah, as a one concluding question, why do you think it is important that we understand these sort of underlying um, basis of morality? What, why does this matter? I think it matters. Uh, and I mean, we're not we're talking politics now, not, 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 not sociology. And I think it matters because it's sort of like de, it de-essentializes the discourse. And people who, if people in the human rights movement themselves would be more aware of their own, what can be called minima moralia, they could talk better to 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 uh, uh, to each other and to people who, who who think of them as some kind of like disengaged lunatics who work against the interests of their own country, and 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 all that. But sure. since they are not aware themselves they become also very high-pitched uh, moralizers. Mm -hmm. 
And I think if you if you're more aware of the, of the, of the, of the of the underlying like social conditions of morality, your own morality becomes uh, much more toned down and much more moderate. So I think this this is this might be actually a good thing. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for thank talking you. with us today. Um, and best of wish best wishes on the conference. All right. Thank <laughs> Thanks. <you. laughs> now. Thank you.